So we're going to be, as I said, finishing up Romans 13, looking at verse 8. We're going to be going through this. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of people talk about in the Christian life, I'm sure you may have heard it, but the idea of getting saved. We've heard that expression. Notice I say saved as in past tense, not future, but saved as a past tense reality that's already been accomplished. And we, you know, we speak this, this way so commonly, especially if you talk to a Christian who's in the older generation or, uh, you know, they would say like, well, so when did you become a Christian? And they'll say, well, I was saved at a Billy Graham crusade in 1975. I've heard that so many times, you know, especially out in California with the Jesus movement. I got saved in the seventies during the Jesus movement and there, you know, that's, that's a part where my, where my parents, we're in the 70s and part of the Jesus movement. So that is, that is very much, you hear this language of being saved, that I am saved in 1982 at, uh, at some crusade. And, you know, there was actually a movie made by Mandy Moore, uh, which actually mocked this evangelical uh, expression. It was the name of the movie. It kind of painted Christians in a negative and judgmental way. But the name of the movie was sarcastically called Saved. So this is a very common thing, and you know, and we, we do focus on getting people saved. Um, I want to be clear from the outset. I'm not mocking that or making fun of that. I think it's a biblically perfectly. A biblically acceptable way for us to speak as Christians, to speak as someone being saved, because Paul uses that, that use of that word salvation in the past tense throughout our entire reading of the book of Romans. In fact, it is the predominant way he speaks about salvation is a past tense reality. A verse that many of you may have heard or not, but Romans 10, 9 through 10, because if you confess with your mouth, that mouth not mouse, no, don't do that, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Past tense. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Past tense there. However, this morning we're going to see something interesting in our verse-by-verse -verse study. That's why we do verse-by-verse -verse preaching here, so we can see other dimensions in the scriptures here. And rather than just a past dimension of salvation being stressed, we're going to see different di di dimension of salvation. Salvation is not a one-dimensional thing in the way Paul uses the word saved. There's actually a three-dimensional use of the word salvation. It's, it's, it's multi-faceted. So we are saved in the past. That's one dimension. Past tense salvation. But in some sense, we are presently being saved right now. And so we're going to look at that. But what we're going to see in our text this morning, as Lord willing, is that there is a future sense of salvation that you and I are looking forward to right now. And so we're going to see the connection behind all of this. And as I went through this, and my wife was commenting on this, she's like, well, these are a lot of, you know, as you go verse by verse, you get a lot of different topics coming at you. And so I, I trust as we look at this, we're going to see how this is connected to future salvation and all these different topics we're going to look at as we look through Romans 13, 8 here. And we're just going to look at a different things Paul is bringing up. We're going to see how it's tied to future salvation. And what's, what, what does that mean for us? What does it mean that, that salvation awaits us in the future? So we're going to kind of dig into the text here. And these are all related. They may seem unrelated at first, but we're going to look into this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has another has fulfilled the law. Now, I have met people, especially when the expression says, owe 
owe no one anything, like don't owe a person anything, people have understood this to mean that you're not to have any loans at all. No loans for you. No home loan, no car loan, no loan at all. Because if you get a loan out, you gotta, you're going to owe somebody something, right? And they say, so yeah, here we should owe, owe uh, no, get no loans, so you don't have to owe anything to anybody. No loan for you, no suit for you kind of thing, right? And you know, I mean, if you're trying to buy one of these houses in, in, in Draper here with cold, hard cash... Which, let's be honest, 95% of us really can't do. You're going to be renting forever with Mr. Beast, right? You're just going to be renting forever and ever and ever because you're never going to get the, the cash. So, yeah, I mean, it's like no home for you, no suit, you know, no loan for you kind of thing. And I had actually, this is kind of interesting, I had one friend say, well, so I went to, you know, years of graduate education and seminary and a graduate school so I could be a pastor and learn the uh, biblical languages and everything. And so uh, what someone told me is, well, you know, Nate, you had to take out, you know, graduate and student loans to go to school. And so because, because of that, you were, you were in sin. You were sinning by taking out student college loans and everything. And so ironically then, going to school to be a pastor is a sin in this person's mind, right? It's kind of the irony of whole situation. So this is how serious people take this verse, you know, people that are really, you know, I mean, this is, this is Dave Ramsey on a whole other level right here, right, if you take this too far. But the thing is, and I'm not against Dave Ramsey, by the way, you're like, wow, went to the church for the first time, pastors just throwing Dave Ramsey under the bus. Now, I'm not doing that, I'm just saying, you know, that's really extreme right there. But... Paul, as a first century Jew, would not be meaning this. And this is why no scholar, scholars do not take it this way. Because the book of Exodus has, uh, has laws where it applies to loans. I mean, Jesus himself in Matthew 5, 42, talks about borrowing and says you should do it. Look at this. This is very clear. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So Jesus says, yeah, you can borrow, which means you owe something back to somebody. And Jesus says this is not sinful. He doesn't say, well, it's only certain things. So he just makes a broad blanket statement here. And so the real issue that, that Paul is getting at, and you see this in the Old Testament, but the idea of someone who just accumulates all these loans, irresponsible, in an irresponsible way, you got all these credit card debt, you know, you're just, you're, you're fraught with debt and loans, and you never pay it back and you got the creditors calling in everything and it's just a mess. That's, that's really what he's stressing here at this sort of being a good citizen. Being a good and upstanding citizen, but this is what you get from the psalm, for instance, which Paul would have been very acquainted with and this is kind of the heart of what he's getting at. 30, psalm 37, 21. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. So he's got two opposites here. The wicked person never pays back, whereas the righteous does pay back, and he goes above and beyond. He's a generous person. So this is not saying, yeah, you know, well, don't have her have a loan out. Loans are bad. You know, we're just going to, Christians are forced to rent for the rest of their lives unless you're a multimillionaire. No, that's not the idea here is that we are in context here to be good citizens. We're not to be people that are just like in debt constantly and living in this, in the state. Now, obviously there are situations where you can't control that. I get it. But if in so far as you can control it, you shouldn't be in the situation where you're just taking out loan after loan, getting a boat, getting this, getting a that's, that's the heart of this. And so what he is saying here is the only thing you're supposed to owe one another is love. And we owe each other love 
Because Jesus perfectly gave us love first by dying on the cross for every single one of your sins, by living the perfect life. Jesus dedicated his whole life to serving and saving you so we can never pay that back. And so we owe a love debt to Jesus, which Jesus says, love one another. We owe it back to each other. As a famous hymn puts it, Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. I won't be singing it for you because there's a reason we have people up here singing, not me. But you get the point. He paid it all. We owe it all to Jesus. Now, we can never, ever pay back what God did for us. Some people think, well, I can go above and beyond the call of duty as a Christian. I can be a super Christian and go above what God commands and be super good. No, no one can go above and beyond what, what God requires because we can never pay back what Jesus did for us. Jesus made an infinite sacrifice for us. We cannot, as finite people, even begin to understand how God came down in the person of Christ to die on the cross, to take the wrath of God in our place. We can never, ever pay that back. And so we are in a, sta a state of owing one another love perpetually and constantly. And so we always remember the sacrifice of Christ as we owe each other love. He describes how we're to play out the picture of love in verses 9 here, uh, Romans 13, 9. For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what a lot of people do not realize is that the, the, the Ten Commandments are actually broken up into two different sections. You have the first table, which describes our obligations to God, what we owe to God, our obligations to God. And Jesus summarizes that with love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This was a, a first century Jewish division here. This is not something I made up and I'm like coming up with neat ideas. No, this is grounded in the history. You can see it here. So the first part of the Ten Commandments was our obligations to God. You know, don't take the Lord's name in vain, keep the Sabbath, all of those kind of commandments. Right? That's the first section of the Ten Commandments. Loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second section is sometimes called the second table of the Ten Commandments is our obligations to people. Now, and that's where you get don't murder people, don't commit adultery, all of these sort of things. And so you have these two sections. And how do you sum up these two sections? Well, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul is hitting on the second section or second table of the Ten Commandments saying, yeah, this is your obligations to one another. This is the obligations of love, these commandments here. And that means, I mean, if Paul and Jesus are summarizing the Ten Commandments and bringing it into the New Covenant documents, that means that we're to keep the, the Ten Commandments. We're, I mean, we don't do it perfectly. We need Jesus to keep it for us. But we're at least, you know, as Christians, we have that love debt to God and we want to give back because he's given us everything. So, you know, we, we, we struggle to keep them, but that's going to be kind of our goal here. And so, but there are people, I've met Christians who have said, yeah, no, the Ten Commandments, let's get rid of them. I mean, it's ironic when they say that. No one wants to get rid of the one that says don't murder people. People want to keep that one, right? Pretty obvious one there. But I mean, yeah, so I mean, all the commandments are carried over, you know, they might pick and choose commandments, but ultimately, yeah, these are carried over by Paul uh, and people, we live in a society that doesn't like Rules. I'm kind of a rule, rule breaker myself. You know, I was telling somebody this week, you know, if I saw a sign that says don't touch wet paint, I'm going to touch it right. I want to touch it, look around, you know, kind of thing. I'm, a, I'm kind of a rule breaker. But, you know, people, you know, don't like rules, but, uh, and they like love. We love love, but rules, they kind of make us uncomfortable, restrictive. 
And so we have this movement that says, well, we got to get rid of loss. We got to get rid of, of moral demands. And I've heard people say, uh, you know, well, love rules without rules. <laughs> kind of, kind of catchy there. Love has no rules, as many put it. This is what a famous and rich author, Paulio Colo, puts it. He says, with love, there is no rules. The heart decides, and what it decides is all that really matters. Well, I have to put it to you pretty direct here. The prophet Jeremiah would probably disagree with that since he says the heart is desperately sinful and wicked. Who, you can't even understand how messed up it is. So don't, yeah, go by your heart. Yeah, that's great. It's great to go by your heart when you're, you know, on the freeway and someone cuts you off and you go into road rage. Just give into to the road rage. Give into to your heart. No, it's not always a good idea because our thoughts are distorted. Oftenly. So, you know, I mean, so this common mentality that we can just disregard biblical law, biblical, you know, and just get rid of it, it I mean, that, that also is where it sees a problem with love because that is, that is not what, how Paul views it. Paul views it that if you're loving to someone, you're keeping the law. And if you're keeping the law, you're being loving to somebody. They're not like disconnected things. Uh, so to love your neighbor is to keep the laws. And that's what Paul is saying here. And you look, you see this really established in verse 10. It says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Fulfilling, it upholds the law. When you're loving and kind to somebody, you're actually keeping the law. We, don't, we shouldn't think of the law as just arbitrary things God comes up with to make our lives miserable. There are ways to express love to others because Jesus first loved us by his grace and mercy, forgiving us of all of our sins. And let's be honest. What people really mean when they say, well, we just got to love and pay no attention to law, is, is they're really saying, yeah, let's just do what makes me feel comfortable and the other person comfortable. That's really what it comes down to. You know, what it really means when someone says, yeah, it's just love and no law, it means, you know, what makes you feel good? What's convenient for you and everybody else is what it is. And so people, uh, you know, really take this far. You know, they get into like, you know, a kumbaya hippie, you know, circle and say, let's just, let's all love. Don't, don't worry about it, you know, kind of thing. But, you know, if you have a friend who's on drugs, is having an affair on their spouse and they're hurting people and they're like, and they're like, oh, what I'm doing is the most awesome thing ever. It's so neat what I'm doing, you know, going on drugs and having an affair the best thing you can do for them is to tell them the truth and what they're doing is wrong. They're hurting people. They're destroying their life. That is not convenient. That may not make you feel good in the moment. That may not be very comfortable for you and it's not going to make them feel comfortable either, but they need to hear it if you love them. We shouldn't be wiser than God. You know, like, uh, I mean, come on, we all do this. I've done this many times. You lie to a friend or a loved one because you're trying to make them feel comfortable. You don't want to have to tell them the truth because it's going to be kind of like a, a nasty thing and you're worried it's going to hurt the relationship. You know, you're, and you, so you don't say anything and so you lie to them. But in the long run, you're really hurting that person because Jesus says the truth will, will set you free. I mean, to tell the truth and not to lie even when it seems convenient, that's, that's, that, that's hard to tell the truth when you want to lie and it's an inconvenient thing. Not, I mean, telling people comfortable lies is so easy for us. It's so natural, you know, to just appease people. You know, if my doctor took that approach with me, I mean, who knows? I might be dead right now. I don't know. <laughs> my doctor, uh, about uh, seven or eight months ago, told me my family has a history of very high blood pressure, um, high cholesterol, especially if my weight is not kept down. And so I, you know, I avoid the doctors like I avoid the dentist. I'm just like, 
You know, I actually chipped my tooth yesterday because I've gone to the dentist in so long. I am like the biggest offender of like avoiding doctors and dentists, you know. And so, you know, I'll just do whatever I want and just like, let's not talk. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about the truth, you know. So I, you know, walk into my doctor's office. My wife was there, which made it even better for me. <laughs> and, you know, let me tell you, my doctor, he is from New York and he does not sugarcoat a thing. And thank God, because I've, my blood pressure's better now. I mean, you know, I mean, he, he told me the truth, and he was so direct about it. I mean, he's direct about everything, let's be honest. But, you know, I mean, he's, you know, if he said to me, oh, you, yeah, you've got the peak male body, this is what it is, you know, this is, you're just amazing, you've got such great health, then, you know, I mean, I, I could have had a stroke, and, you know, I wouldn't be here for you guys, my family, my, my wife needs me, my kids need me most of the time when they want stuff. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I need to be around for people for y'all, you know, I want to, I want to be here to, to, to care and love people, you know. So, you know, I mean, the fact that he told me that in his most brash New York honesty, I mean, he's like, you know, you're 48% body fat. He's like, what's that? You know, you're all, I can't believe how fat you are. He said that to me. I mean, <laughs> guys, just he lays it in thick, and so. You know, I lost 40 pounds. So that's, that's so because he was honest with me. And now everything's, my, my numbers are looking much better. Everything's much better with me. Here's my point. You got to tell the truth. And, you know, we, anybody who's been married knows that the person you're most honest with is your spouse. And that's why marriage grows you so much because someone's always calling you out and your bad behavior all the time. That's why marriage is such a beautiful thing. You know, no one's more honest than your wife or your husband. You know, I mean, well, let's hope so. But, you know, yeah, that, and, that, and that grows you. And so when we, we don't want to be wise in the God. We want to follow the commandments, be honest. We don't want to make up our own definitions of love and just kind of find loopholes because God knows what's best for us. God can see the future. He knows it all from beginning to end. And you know what? What you feel is right or wrong, if that's loving or not, your feelings, you may feel like it's right, but I've had feelings that I felt really strongly about that are wrong. I believe things that are wrong, but you know who's never wrong? God. The word of God is never wrong. And so we should trust that and trust his commandments. Well, people will often say to me, well, I, I've got a counterexample of one of the commandments, the lying one, Nate, you know. Uh, you know, what if you're in Nazi Germany and, you know, you're, you're being a good guy and you're hiding the Jews in the basement and all of a sudden, one evening, Nazi knocks on your door and says, oh, hey, got any Jews in your house? And you're like, well, I want to be honest. And so, you know, so you tell them the truth. And then what results from that is, is, is those Jews lose their life because of what the Nazis did. And so people say, well, there you go. There's an example of where it's love and not the commandments. But the problem is the Bible actually teaches that you should do that. In the case of Rahab in the book of Joshua, it says that there's exceptions to that commandment when there's a higher thing at stake, namely a human being made in God's image and that their life is precious and worthy of protection, that we should care for it, even if that means that we should lie to hide them from the Nazis as what happened in World War II. And so, yeah, I mean, it's Rahab lied. Uh, she saved the Jewish people. She lied to her own people so that she could save them. They were going to kill them, and she lied to them. And in James chapter 2, God calls her doing a good work for that. That was a good thing that she did. So this is not an exception, because the Bible lays out this as something we should do in those cases. So there is no exception to these kind of commandments where, you know, God teaches it in his word clearly. Now, in the next verse, verse 11... 
We're getting to the salvation stuff, and we're going to see this kind of more connected to the intro here. Romans 13, 11. Besides this, know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, as I said, we talk about salvation being this past tense thing, and when we talk about being saved, what are we saved from? That past tense salvation, that, that we're saved, what it means is that we are saved from the wrath and curse and judgment of God by faith, by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And this is taught in the scripture, a very important part of our salvation. I'm not saying, oh yeah, that past tense salvation, just forget about it. You start off that way and don't even think about it. No, that is something we hold on to even as we're growing as Christians and as we look forward to the final day when all things are new. And so we don't move beyond being saved. We grow deeper and deeper. And that helps us grow in our Christian life, as we'll see. So when we are first saved, past tense, past tense, we are saved from God's wrath because we have sinned against an infinite God and we deserve an infinite punishment. God is not Barney. God is infinitely holy and just. He is a perfectly good being. And so we are saved by Jesus in Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have been justified, we're declared righteous by his blood, by his death, is what that's referring to. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we are saved from God's wrath. It says it here by faith in Jesus. We are, we are fully and completely righteous in Christ. And when God views you, he doesn't view you as deserving judgment or punishment. He views you through the lens of Jesus Christ. And he views you as if you've never sinned. And all the merit and obedience that Jesus did during his life is given to you, is given to your account. And you can never lose that. Final salvation is guaranteed because you are in an impenetrable coat of righteousness. You are in a cave of righteousness and nothing can separate you from the, of the love of Jesus because the work of Jesus Christ is just that powerful. So you are uh, saved from that. But of course, as we all know, we still sin. I sin every day. You sin every day. Probably hour, maybe even lower than that. We, you know, we, we sin a lot. Okay, we're, we're not perfect. No one's perfect here. You know, only Jesus is perfect. And so what this final sense of salvation is being used, it's using salvation in a different sense, is that when we go to be with Jesus, we are saved from all, having to deal with your sin, having to deal with me and me messing up on certain, you know, sometimes you can get so frustrated with yourself, don't you? You're just making the same mistake. You're like, Nate, what's your problem? You keep on doing that. You know, that's so selfish or, or, or short-sighted. You know, we, we fall into these traps. And so the hope of future salvation, salvation is used in a different sense in each case, is, is that hope that no more sin. It's over. We can just dwell in the, we bask in the beautiful presence of Jesus Christ. Now, salvation in Greek, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. Salvation in Greek is just as flexible as it is in English. Just as flexible. So we say, oh man, I heard the, the, you know, Rotten Tomatoes gave that movie a thumbs down. I'm saved from seeing that awful movie. <laughs> you know, or in my case, impending doom here, uh, you know, or is, you know, I'm saved from seeing the dentist, right? Which to me, I really don't like going there, you know, or the doctor, you know that. So, or, you know, I was saved from a car accident. When we use saved, it's such a super flexible word. 
in our English language. And you know, the same is true in the Bible. The same is used in Koine Greek, which is the language the Bible is written. We know what it means. We can translate it. It's pretty, pretty straightforward in that sense. But Hebrews eleven seven, you're going to see how flexible this word for salvation is here. It says, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So, physical life. He saved their physical lives by building that ark. And so, you can see, it's very flexible. It can be saved from, in the Bible, it can be saved from anything negative. Sickness, death, whatever it is, just like it is. In English, super, super flexible. And it's and actually what's really interesting, and this is the present sense in which we're being saved, is that we are saved progressively from sinful and destructive habits. And this is what, how it's used. So you're presently, right now, all of you are presently, if you trust in Christ, are being saved in a progressive present sense. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 2-3. It says, And by which you are being saved. Being saved. Presently, progressively, if you hold fast to the word, holding fast to the gospel, holding fast to the finished work of Christ, I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel message, and it keeps us from, it helps us being saved. Um, and this is really, knowing this, knowing that salvation is used in a variety of different ways in the Bible, will help you out so much. It'll save you from so much stress and heartache, misunderstanding and confusion. I've had people ask me, uh, I mean, about 1 Corinthians 15 in particular. People have asked me, they said, gosh, Nate, you know, I mean, it says we're being saved. I thought I was already saved. So I'm not fully saved right now, Nate? So that means I got to start working hard and striving to get my good points in with God. I got to really start, you know, climbing myself out of the pit of darkness here and start, because I'm progressively being saved. So, you know, maybe God can get mad at me because I'm not completely saved yet. And so I got to start striving, you know, to finish up the rest of my salvation. I got kind of saved me at the beginning and now I'm going to kind of run up that ladder, run up that, that mountain and I'm going to try to finish up my salvation and strive and work hard. And it's a lot of stress and it's a lot of anxiety. And that's not what Paul is saying here. You need to know that, that, that he's using salvation in a very flexible sense, in the sense that when you become a Christian, when you trust in Jesus, what happens over time is that these, and I've noticed this in my own life, you know, over the past, gosh, I've been a Christian for almost 20 years. I can't believe it. But yeah, that bad habits I've had have kind of slowly faded away. Bad things that I've done, you know, bad habits, bad ways of thinking, bad ways of dealing with people and all sorts of things I've done that are silly and stupid. Some of those things I don't do anymore. And, you know, some of you guys who were here from the first time I, st I started this thing up with uh, seven years ago, you might remember some of the things I used to do. You know, I would, you know, say certain things I shouldn't have said or maybe have been insensitive to somebody and I'm learning and growing. And so I'm saved from past sinful habits. And so that's what, I, what being saved here is all about. So we are saved past tense, we are presently being saved from bad, sinful habits. You're never perfect, by the way, so you're never completely saved from that in this life, let's be honest. And now what we're going to see here in verses 11 through 12, and this matters to how Paul says how you should live your life currently, you will be saved. Future tense, it's future. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, you know. Have your wits about you. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. 
So it's, this, it's getting nearer to you. It's a future thing. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Night being a symbol for immorality and lackadaisicalness and day being alertness and following Christ. So cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. It's a Roman imagery here where they would, Roman guards and Roman soldiers, they would, uh, at night they'd take off their armor. In daytime they'd have their armor on. So it's playing into this imagery here. So in context here, Paul is talking about future salvation from all sin. Not 99% of our sin, 100% of our sin in our life. We will go to heaven. We will never sin again. Thank you, Jesus. Let me tell you. And uh, this is uh, what I take this to mean primarily is when he's saying your salvation is nearer to you than when you first believe. What he is talking about is when we die, you know, we're closer to death than we've ever been before. And each day it just kind of adds on. But when we die, we go to be with Jesus. Our, we're not just, you know, you know, a physical meat machine. We're body and soul. The Bible teaches that. And so when we die, our souls go to be with Christ in this before the coming, second coming of Christ. Look at how Hebrews 12.23 puts it. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Meaning they weren't previously perfect. They made mistakes, but the, our spirits, our souls are perfected when we're in paradise, but Jesus is a thief on the cross experienced. So yeah, when we die, our souls go to be with Jesus, made perfect. We don't have to deal with the pain. I mean, for me, I, I'm, kind of an, I'm kind of an intense achiever, but for me, sin and pain and failure, it's really hard on me emotionally. But this future salvation is promised here. It, it, it's, this is a really glorious reality. It's not talking about, okay, in the future you'll be saved from God's judgment. No, you're already saved from God's judgment. It's not saying, well, you know, in the future, God's going to finally love you. You're already loved right now by God. You are already accepted by Jesus. And so this future salvation refers to knowing the presence of Jesus being saved, the pains of this life, and having not to deal with yourself anymore, your sins, your failures, all these kind of things. Now, another possibility that folks take this verse to be saying is that they say, oh yeah, this is about the when Jesus returns in the second coming, we'll have our resurrection bodies and we'll be in a new heavens and new earth wherein righteousness dwells at the second coming of Jesus. And so that's how some people have taken this verse to mean that. And yeah, I think you can say both are in view, but I, as I said, I tend to think this is about salvation from sin and the, the pains of this life because, I mean, the second coming of Jesus, I mean, it's been 2,000 years. I mean, you imagine like, you know, he's saying you're nearer to salvation. It's like, well, gee, Paul, yeah, that's 2,000 years away. And to Paul and the writers of, of, the, of, the, of the church, I believe, in the first century, I believe they saw the second coming of Christ far off because certain things had to happen, like the salvation of Israel in Romans 11. So there's certain things that make the second coming of Christ far off. And, you know, as you know, we don't know the day or the hour when Christ is going to return. We don't know that. I mean, God knows that. Even Jesus says that in Matthew 24. We don't know that day. So don't make uh, any predictions now. I'm not going to make any. You know, well, Jesus is going to come back in 2030, you know, because of some Mayan calendar stuff. I'm not going to do that. That's not how we roll here because Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour. Now, 
But to the Roman Christians, that day is far off. We know that. It's been 2,000 years later. Jesus has not returned. There's going to be a, a long period of time you know, that they knew that that was going to happen. So this is, he's talking to them in their first century context and saying, hey, you're getting closer and closer to the day of your salvation. They would have been Christians at this point for over 10 years. Many of them would be. And so he's saying, yeah, you're, you're closer to that final day when, Jesus, uh, when you're going to be with Jesus and die than you ever have been. And that's true of all of us. Today And so Paul's big point here, I'm going to dive into this and close, but Paul's big point here is that that truth that we're closer and closer and closer to death each and every day, that we're closer to our final salvation, that should impact the way we live right now. That should change everything. That should change our perspective on everything. Romans 13, 13, it says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not sexual immorality. And people ask me, what's drunkenness? Because, you know, the Bible, Jesus, you know, put the water into wine, communion wine, you know, uh, in, in Corinth, they were getting drunk on the communion wine. Um, I'm pretty sure you can't get drunk on Welch's. Just saying, it's pretty hard. You know, people that say it's only grape juice. No, it's, it was wine, and so drinking is permitted. So people say, well, how far is far enough, Nate, for drunkenness? Well, what is the, what's kind of the line? Does the Bible tell us, or we just kind of like have to flip coins and cast lots and guess? No, the Bible tells us, in Isaiah uh, and in many other parts of the prophets, that a sign of drunkenness is kind of like a staggerer and vomiting. Those are two you know, things that are a sign that a person is drunk. Now, you, now that I say it out loud, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Um, you know it when you see it. <laughs> Just saying. Um, so, yeah, not quarreling and jealousy. I think we know what that is. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're putting on Christ and we're reminding us of his righteousness and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, focusing on Christ. So as I said, night and sleep is used here for being inactive, not focus on the purpose and point of life. It's to live in your sin and pleasure and not think about God, not focused on the right thing, not alert on the right thing. That is what night and sleep is being referenced to, whereas day and awakeness means you, you've, got, you've, got, you've got the right focus in life. You've got the right perspective in life, and that is to glorify and serve God, to focus on God and his glory, to advance the gospel so people can be saved. That's got to be our focus, not on so many trifles that we stress about. So the fact that life is very short, very fleeting, and as you get older, you notice this, it, it feels very quick. Um, there's a sense of urgency about keeping God the centers of our, center of our lives and being focused on eternity. It, it, it focuses our mind more. And what's interesting is that as people get older and they go through life, they notice that like age and life experience goes faster and faster and faster and that, that things speed up. Things come at an accelerated rate at you. It comes fast at you. And this is, a, this is according to the, all the studies I saw up there. I mean, you probably know that experientially, but that, I'm just saying you're not alone if you experience it that way. Scientific America, it says, why does time uh, seem to speed up with age? It says, in 2005, for instance, psychologists at the University of Munich surveyed 499 participants ranging from ages 14 to 94 about the pace at which they felt time was moving from very slow to very fast. For shorter durations, a week, a month, even, even a year, the subject's perception of time did not appear to increase with age. Most participants felt the clock ticked by quickly. 
But for longer durations, here's the point, because the old people always think they have so much time, but for longer durations, such as a decade, a pattern emerge. Older people tend to perceive time as moving faster. <coughs> Excuse me. When asked to reflect on their lives, the participants older than 40 felt that time had elapsed slowly in their childhood, but then accelerated steadily through their teenage years and early adulthood. And uh, I'm nearing up on 40 this year. In case you didn't know and i mean gosh i can i it feels like yesterday that i was a teenager you know like i, I just i mean i was teaching at ics uh about uh well i mean this happened about three months ago but i said to my class i said it's so weird to me like i felt i mean i just it feels like just the other day i was like you know middle school or high school and now i'm teaching middle schoolers like that's so weird to me, like how fast it feels. I mean, it feels like I was just 18 yesterday, and now as I'm nearly 40, I'm kind of having a midlife crisis here. I'm going to open up. No, I'm just kidding, you know. But it's just kind of like, wow, that's so trippy, you know. And, you know, we, we, we realize that, you know, at any point, I mean, my doctor kind of really scared me, you know. Because uh, I did have such high blood pressure. I, I was not in a, in a good spot health-wise just due to hereditary reasons more than anything. And, and any weight's gravy on top of that. But, you know, I mean, that I, I could have a stroke at any moment is kind of what he said to me. And, you know, just the fact that I can, I'm getting closer and closer to Jesus every day. And you, full, you just fully realize that each and every day that... And that song, time is on my side. Yes, it is. I always remember like some weird Denzel Washington movie where that's repeated over and over again. But anyways, that's, a, that's not related. But <laughs> So yeah, time's on my side. It's like, no, it is not on your side. It is clearly against you. The, talk, the, 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 the clock is, uh, is talk. It's not even a word. The clock is a ticking. <laughs> um... It is ticking, and we are getting closer to closer to Christ and spending time with Him. And so we have to be intentional about our time. We have to be intentional about spending our time glorifying God, serving and loving others, advancing the gospel so that people can hear the good news of Jesus and be saved. We have to focus on what matters most. Time is precious, very precious. People say time is money. No, no, it actually isn't. Time is not money because it is far more important than money because you can have all the money in the world and you cannot turn back that clock. It relentlessly goes forward no matter what, no matter how you feel or how you think you feel. It goes on. So it is very precious. You cannot waste it. I mean, life is short and fragile. We shouldn't be wasting our lives on ourselves, good times, sensual pleasures, getting high, getting away from things, just zoning out. No, we are called to be alert and here for the glory of God. We have a very fragile gift from God called life that's so precious and yet so fragile. And this is not my opinion, like I'm just... Uh, philosophizing up here just you know shooting from the hip this is what the word of God calls our lives in James 4 13 through 14 it says come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit yet you do not know what tomorrow will, will, will bring what is your life what is your life right now how quick and fleeting is it it says for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes I can't think of anything more fragile than a mist. I mean, that's as fragile and as fleeting as it gets. 
that's a fragile nature of life. And there may be somebody here today that may be facing Jesus very soon. We don't know. Just like we don't know the day of the hour when Christ returns, we don't know the day of the hour that'll be our last. Maybe unexpectedly, we can't predict things. We don't know. Because it is, your life is such a fragile mist. It is a fragile vapor that just hangs and hangs on the edge of eternity. We don't even realize it. We numb ourselves with games and whatever. We don't realize it. Um, Greg Bonson, in his final sermon, uh, right before his death, said this really well. And he was a big influence on my life. And... Um, his ministry caused me to come to Christ, so I wasn't expecting to get emotional about this, but it just comes. But uh, death, he says in his last sermon, he knew he was going to die. He was having heart failure. Um, the doctors were going to try to do one last ditch surgery on him. He says, death focuses the mind. It takes away all the nonsense puts aside all the periphery, all the subordinate issues, and helps you to really think seriously about the meaning of life. And he was speaking of himself as he was trying to get his congregation in order before he had to face Christ. And Paul's point is here is that life is so short, so fleeting. You're getting closer and closer and closer to death every day. Focus on Jesus and what he has done for you and serving in return and a debt we can never repay. You know, people, people think, there are people who think that, you know, okay, well, this life is all there is to it, and everything is all about you, and finding pleasure, sensual happiness, and, you know, and you, you just, you have all this time in this life, you know, so people have this mindset, don't achieve much for the kingdom of God, you know, there's no sense of urgency with anybody, just chill, just relax, you know, there's no sacrifice or anything for the most important things, it's all about me, and myself, and I, and I, in the life that I have, and I can do what I want with it, you know, kind of thing, and so what people do, in this mindset is they're always they're not thinking about eternity they're numbing themselves they're numbing themselves to say okay I look forward to this you know when I get a promotion or the next stage of life or retirement or whatever it is and so the focus is always on the next stage and the next stage and the next stage until finally you're all broken down and you should have realized it should have been focused on Christ all along because this life is short. It is short and it's short even according to Paul. It's not just short. He doesn't call it just short. He calls this life not a circus, a festival, a pleasure-seeking fiesta. He calls it a short or a, a brief momentary affliction. You know, so this life, people, we view it as a marathon. Paul's like, nah, it's a sprint. It's a quick sprint, is what it is. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. What does Paul call this life? I want you to focus. This is amazing. For this light, momentary. It's quick. It's fleeting. Light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal, forever lasting. Isn't that amazing? That Paul calls the pains in this life light? You're like, I don't feel any light pain when I'm going through hard times. There's nothing light about that, but what he's doing is make, he's making relative statements here. That it is light compared to the joys and glory of heaven and knowing Jesus Christ forever and ever. It is light compared to that. 
calls it momentary, quick and brief, like that vapor. And you're like, well, hey, you know, 90 years seems like a long time to me. I don't think that's momentary, you know? It's not like, well, he's making, again, a relative statement. It's momentary compared to living with Jesus for billions and billions and billions and, I keep on going like Dr. Evil, but billions of years, right? I mean, we're lucky if you make it to 70. I mean, really? I mean, you have no guarantee on that, what's going to happen. And yet... 70 years, I mean, you compare that to billions of years. Like, I can't even wrap my mind around that. And so that should be our focus. Not these 70, 80, these, this vapor that we get. That, we shouldn't be focused on the vapor. We should be focused on the big picture. The huge picture, the massive picture. Billions and billions of years where, you know, we get to enjoy Christ. And, you know, people are so focused on just joys and bringing, sad, uh, bringing happiness in this immediate moment. And they're always so miserable they're sad in the end. You know, they work, work so hard and they strive so long for things that don't matter. We should be focusing and investing in Christ's kingdom in the things that do matter, not just for 50, 40, 30 years, but things that are going to matter for billions of years. What do you want to invest in this morning? You want to you invest in, you want to put all your eggs in a 50, 60, 70 year basket? Really? That doesn't even make any sense. Or do you want to invest in something that's eternal, that lasts billions and billions of years? I mean, if you're just being rational and honest, there's no sense to have a selfish, pleasure-seeking, all-about-me life. Rather, it makes every rational sense in the world to be focused on Christ and eternal life and eternal joy and eternal significance with Him. And you see, that's where we find meaning and hope in our lives right now, is that big picture. This, this world, as I like how William Lane Craig puts it, but it's a damp, narrow foyer before the grand hall of eternity. And we're like, let's stay in the foyers and make a fire and let's get comfortable. Well, actually, if you make a fire in the foyer, the whole theater burns down. That would be bad. Don't do that. But, you know, so yeah, this is like a small, small thing compared to the, the whole game. And we're focused on it so much. And so if you want purpose this morning, you've not trusted in Christ I want you to know that when you trust in Jesus, it not only changes this life and transforms how you view everything, it changes you for all eternity. It gives you purpose now and forever in Jesus. If you trust in him, and if you haven't, I pray this morning that you would trust and receive Jesus Christ, not just for the forgiveness of your future sins, but for all your sins, past, present, and future. Everything you ever could do, you are loved by God if you trust in him and you are in an impenetrable suit or cage of righteousness where God will never cast you out. He'll never leave you. He's always there there for you just by trusting and reaching out to him by faith. And that is good news. Let us pray and give God glory.